Welcome to For The Win, the podcast that goes behind the scenes of the people, campaigns and strategies that changed Australia forever. I'm your host, Emily Mulligan. Today I talk to Meredith Bergman about smashing racism, being attacked by Nazis and winning an iconic anti-apartheid campaign, Stop the Tours. She has filing cabinets at ASIO dedicated to her non-violent direct action to disrupt the sporting events that white South Africa treasured. Much of the history of this campaign is lost as it took place before the digital record, so I'm really grateful to be able to hear this story firsthand. How did you organise in the 70s? Tips, pubs were critical. How did you work up the guts to run onto a field of rugby players? What was it like to to correspond with Don Bradman? Meredith is generous enough to tell me. time before social media we're talking the 60s the 70s um how did you guys organize yourselves isn't that interesting (laughs) I, i keep wanting to write an article about this because we used all techniques that hardly exist now um first of all how did you get people to know that you were calling a demonstration Mm-hmm. when, you know, you didn't even have mobile phones. And, in fact, a lot of students didn't even have landlines. So we really had to rely on the political poster, which hardly exists now. But the posters of the 60s and 70s are all demo on Friday, you know, oppose racism, blah, blah. And it, we'd go out at night and paste these up on the on the telegraph poles and the walls and... You know, often you got caught by police doing this, and it was it was quite exciting, but um, very hard work. The other way you did it was simply by word of mouth. That you and and I think that's why the student organisations were so important in organising in those days because they were the one they were the people who saw each other each day, whereas community groups or specific um, issue groups mightn't have seen each other. Uh, We had phone trees when someone, um, uh, you had a number of people that you had to ring as soon as someone rang you. But it was still very difficult to get um, action happening quickly, which of course you can do so easily now. And I still find myself thinking, oh, they've left it very late to organise that um, particular protest. And of course I keep forgetting that they only need a few hours to let everyone know. The other thing that uh, has gone uh, the way of all old uh, technology, and I'm so glad it has, is the Gestetner or the Roneoing machine because you had to, and it was always the women because it was women's work and the men... I have no idea what that is. Right. (laughs) I will tell you. It was women's work because men didn't have keyboard skills in those days. We didn't call it keyboard skills because that's a bit sort of exciting and techy. We called it typing and men didn't know how to type. So you always were having to dodge men who wanted you to type their essays for them and things like that. I just pretended I couldn't type. But... With the roneoing machine, you had to, uh, if, you, if you were doing a sort of a, a, a leaflet, you had to type it onto a wax sheet. And if you made a mistake, you had to um, sort of white out the mistake on the wax sheet, but you used um, nail polish because that was the most useful thing 
to use and then you had to type over that to in order to fix your mistake so if you at the end of a you know if you at the end of a leaflet if you found a mistake in the middle well it just had to stay there you know? <laughs> and then that wax sheet was stuck on a roller and then you had to gestetna the and the women had to do that too because the men didn't want to do it and which meant you just used it was a bit like an old-fashioned ringer you just um twirled it around and the um, finished version came out the bottom. It was unbelievably tedious doing it and I'm very glad that that technology is no longer needed. So that's how you get a poster or print out posters? That, no, that would be how we did leaflets. Oh, leaflets. Posters yeah. were mostly done by screen printing, mm. which is a very similar thing now. But, of course, the people who, who began that wonderful era from the tin sheds of wonderful political posters, people like um, Chips McAnulty, they ended up having to give that up because their health was being so affected by the chemicals they used in the in the posters. Wow. I've got a photo of, of Chips and I um, making posters in the tin sheds and it's a, you know, it was a pretty... Um, it, you felt like you were working as a mechanic in a, in a sort of car repair shop. It was it was hard it was hard work too. So you guys were kind of student activists basically at Sydney Uni. I was, yes. You were, yeah. and so that enabled you to meet up regularly, and that you were already kind of in contact in the same place all the time. Yes, and the other important thing was that we had pubs. We had um, political pubs where you went and you met other political people. There was a, there was a particular pub called the Criterion, which was particularly. Uh, important in the 70s, where on a Friday night you could go down there and you would see everyone you needed to talk to about whatever it issue, whatever issue it was you were engaged in. You know, the feminists went there, the Green Band activists, the um, early Aboriginal activists, the prison reform people, you know, you name it, they were all there. And it was a very important organising tool. Wow. And so... Um you guys decided, well, you decided to get involved in the anti-apartheid work. Was that a response to a call from the ANC? Or were you just, like, appalled at, at what was happening and, like, wanted to just do whatever you could? Like, how Look, did you... Um, uh, uh, three of us um, convened a meeting in 1969, which in Sydney uh, was really the beginning of, really the second wave anti-apartheid work. Um, there had been previous organisations, but were main, they were mainly interested in um, support for prisoners um, mm -hmm. and, and the families of prisoners. And also there was inform an information organisation called the Campaign Against Racism in Sport, which was very, very important, and we loved them. But they, their formal position was that they totally disapproved of our direct action tactics. Um, but, you know, we just... We still get on with them well. Um, they were led by a guy called John Myrtle, who was very important. But the three of us were... It was Dennis Freeney, who was active in the Communist Party and a very important person. Peter McGregor, who was also a student. No, I think he was a teacher at this stage. He'd, he'd, and then there was me. And we set up the what was called the anti-apartheid movement, but we also had a group within that called the Stop the Tours campaign. And it was really the Stop the Tours campaign that did all the direct action stuff. We uh, 
decided that we would um, help the, uh, the, the, the worldwide boycott of, the, of um, South African sport. First of all, because sport was so important to the white South Africans and we played the two sports that were most important to them, mm-hmm. that was cricket and rugby. Mm-hmm. And if we could isolate them if, if, in their sport, we knew that would be a huge morale boost. Mm-hmm. And the African National Congress had said that, the, um, the frontline states had all, also said that um, a, a sporting boycott was important. And, and a sporting boycott had happened at the Olympic level Mm-hmm. Uh, and and in and in soccer, but you know the white South Africans didn't care about soccer because only black South Africans right. played soccer. It was rugby and cricket, and Britain, New Zealand, and Australia were still um, playing with them. So we decided to work towards building up a movement that would be able to stop the Springboks. The Springboks were due in. Um, winter uh, of uh, June of 1971 mm-hmm. and we were formed in 1969. So between 1969 and 1971 we were putting out literature but mainly we organised demonstrations against um, the South African women basketballers which was quite a small demonstration, uh, the South African women tennis players and the uh, surf life-saving team and by the uh, the surf life-saving team was came in early 1971 so it was just before the Mm. Springboks were due and we had been building up to that and that was the first time that I really thought we are going to have enough people to make it significant I mean these were all white sports people right they were racially selected racially it had to be it had to be we didn't oppose well, later we did because they came out supporting apartheid. But on the whole, we didn't oppose individual white sports people. It was racially selected all mm. white sporting teams. And I remember saying to the special branch guy, which special branch is sort of the state branch of ASIO, and you know there were several guys that just followed me all the time, which is why I kept getting arrested because they knew exactly where I was. And I remember so we went out to the airport to demonstrate against the surf lifesavers and I remember saying to this special branch guy, just you wait, when the Springboks come there will be 500 of us. And of course at the first game in Sydney there were 20,000. <laughs> but so we, we recognised that we were building up to something big but we had no idea how big it would get. And you were sort of interfering I guess in these different sports and I guess it's easier to maybe invade a beach than it is a tennis match or whatever so you're probably like experimenting with different a different tactics, tactics. The, with the tennis match we it was because what you need for tennis is intense concentration and silence I guess and well yes and uh we we managed to um uh invade the pitch and sit down and I've got a photo of my dear friend Nadia Wheatley looking like some saint as she kneeled in the, in the, on the court. Um, the, uh, the, the beach, it's it, it, interesting you say it was, would be easy to invade a beach. The, um, they'd put up, the police had put up a huge sort of barbed wire fence around the area where the march past was going to take place and the, the blokes were 
who were leading the demonstration were sort of pushing and pushing to, to get that fence down. And, and it was great to see this crowd. You know, it was a, there were a couple of hundred people there. It was a big crowd. Um, but for women, we had decided to uh, think laterally and we went into the water further down the beach. And so we... <laughs> but we were, we were fully dressed because we, you know hadn't really thought it through. And so we arrive out of the water, dripping like sort of, you know, <laughs> a James Bond <laughs> heroine or whatever, and we throw ourselves under the um, mar- marching feet of these great white gods, you know. these. <laughs> and as I always say to people, if you think demonstrating against uh, sporting heroes is hard, try demonstrating against sporting heroes who save people's lives, you know. <laughs> but the funny thing about the South African team was they'd obviously be, been told just ignore it, so they walked straight over us, didn't miss a beat. There's a wonderful shot of one of them um, sort of treading in the middle of Franny Letters as she lies prostrate on the sand. I was a bit more activist. I grabbed hold of the reel and, um, you know, eventually the police rush in and arrested us all. But it, that was the first time I think we really hit the headlines. That was front page of all the next day's papers because they were very dramatic photographs. Um, so by then we knew things were warming up, but we were still a basically university-based protest movement. Um, and that's when Bob Hawke, who was... Uh, president of the ACTU comes out and the ACTU put a ban on the uh, Springboks and say that they will not, you know, give give them amenities, you know, serve them alcohol or... Wow. Um, but the most important thing was the transport ban, that they would not transport them around Australia. So Billy McMahon, who was the Prime Minister, said that's all right, they can use the RAAF. So the RAAF was going to move these this racially selected team around Australia. And um, the trade unions were terrific. Mm. They, and their support was huge. Um, community groups started getting involved. The churches started getting involved. A number of sort of what we'd call lefty ministers came out and said, uh, you know, that apartheid was a shocking you know, way to organise society and it wasn't Christian... And don't forget that, of course, many, many Christian churches were totally supporting apartheid, mm. so that was very important that mm. those ministers came out. But I still think the thing that gave us real credibility was when seven wallabies and former wallabies said, we will not put ourselves up for selection against a racially selected all-white team. And uh, those seven guys were fantastic. Wow. And, and a couple of them became quite active in... in um, campaigning against uh, the tour. They're still my heroes. Um, So that was very important. And did you get a lot of that kind of, oh, keep politics and sport separate blowback? Absolutely. And you've got to keep remembering, it sounds like there was this huge upsurge of support for us, but it was still probably 20% of the community. You know, the support for apartheid was huge. In Australia? Absolutely, that you know that that you had to fight the communists, and the communists were the blacks in that situation. And uh, don't forget, John Howard called Nelson Mandela a terrorist 
even when he was just about to become president of South Africa. I mean... And this was before 1967, so like Aboriginal people here... Oh no! This was this was in nineteen seventy one. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, and was, the that uh, was brand new. And and it's really important too that uh, young Aboriginal activists like Gary Foley and Paul Coe and Gary Williams and Billy Craigie and Norma Williams or Norma Ingram as she is now they came out and uh, actively opposed the Springboks too, which was terribly important for us. Because yeah, it, it could have been a bit of like, oh, what about... No, the, the Aboriginal community was great. They really saw the stark issue. Mm. But then they said to us, now you've got to start looking at land rights. You mm-hmm. know, they said, hey, why are you worrying about black South Africans, you know? But that, that was a sort of an internal discussion. So we, we ended up um, with a, a, a sizeable support... Uh, but, you know, it was nowhere near. It was nowhere near the majority. Yeah. Uh, and that that line, oh, but you're bringing politics into sport, was used all the time. And we kept saying, no, they're bringing politics into sport. They're the ones that are saying we will only choose on a racial basis, not on a merit basis. And that, and that's the beginning of the, of the equation. Um, and so you got arrested a number of times... Yes, but this. by this stage I'd been sort of pinged as as a leader, and I and I'd been arrested a bit during the anti-Vietnam period, which was really late sixties, and so I was I was I was well known, but uh, I and when I read my ASIO file, it becomes much clearer that they were totally they were they they had cars outside my house, you know, when we were asleep and things. They they were really following us, um, and so. Often, I wouldn't be doing anything very much at all. I'd be, um, you know... Doing some schoolwork. <laughs> and, and I'd end up being arrested. So a lot of my arrests were uh, not warranted, but, but the activist arrests. Um, and I always, you know, I'd say, yes, I did it. But then we'd always plead not guilty because we'd say that we had the... Um, Geneva Convention on our side or something. Would have loved that. We always used to quote the United Nations Charter and say, you know, we were demonstrating against a terrible wrong and therefore the fact that I have breached some traffic order or whatever it was that they said I'd done was, uh, was right. I mean, getting back to how much they opposed us, you know, the government and, and the Conservatives opposed us, uh, Joe Jockey Peterson, who was Premier of of um, Queensland, called a state of emergency in Queensland um, when the Springboks went up there, so that he could protect them. And so I I can't remember a state of emergency being called in Australia for a civil um, civil rights sort of of issue, or even a public disturbance issue. Um, it's kind of how you know you're winning. Uh, well, I, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But at the time, it just felt like incredible overkill and we were very used to incredible overkill. When the Springboks um, played their ga- first game in Sydney, they, all police leave was cancelled and they drafted in thousands of police coming in from the country areas. And wow. it was the, the photographs of that game are extraordinary because they had... Barbed wire fences going up about 20 feet um, around all the area except for the members 
and that members stand, and that's an important thing to remember because that's part of the story mm. later. And, and, and all these police. Um, and the reason why Sydney was so huge in that tour was that, of course, New South Wales is the home of rugby union. Mm-hmm. So they'd had a game in Western Australia and they'd had a game in Melbourne and in the game in Melbourne they'd used the um, police horses. But everyone knew that the real fight was going to happen in New South Wales because I think seven of the... 11 games they played were in New South Wales. They were in Sydney and the ACT and country New South Wales. So that's why all the organising really happened in, in New South Wales. And on that first game at the SCG, it wasn't a test. It was the South Africa versus Sydney, I think, or it might have been New South Wales. It, it wasn't okay, an actual wasn't test. But we knew it was the big one in terms of the demonstration and that was when I looked around and there were 20,000. It was just wonderful to see how people had reacted. And it was we were using that sort of two-pronged approach, which my sister tells me academics call the outlier approach, which is where you have an activist movement prepared to break laws and things and then you have a respectable movement which fights for the for the win. Mm-hmm. And so we had the Karras, the Campaign Against Racism in Sport, and the Wallabies, the, the Wallabies who refused to play, sort of standing outside the ground, handing out leaflets. And there were also a bunch of women in black sashes responding to the South African black sash women's movement. And so they were the respectable group that were, you know, fighting for the win. And we were the disruptors who were going to make certain and making certain that it was front page of the news and making people think about the issue. Um, And we did that knowing we were using that strategy, but having no idea that academics later would call it (laughs) the the outlier effect. So, Um, what was that game like? You guys, I mean, you must you bought your own ticket. Yeah. Well, no. um, Four of us, uh, two boys and two girls, decided the girl was my little sister Verity. And uh, we decided to uh, go into the members' stand, which we knew would not be as armed and, yeah. and, you know, fenced off the way the rest were. And we borrowed tickets from a guy who later became a very, very senior public servant yep. <laughs> in two states, uh, Dick Person, actually. Um, and he almost lost his tickets over uh, his membership to the SCG over that. It's most distressing. But we we went in and we had a Steeleski with us, and we we I I had to disguise myself because by this stage I knew that if I went with my normal sort of wild and woolly blonde hair, they'd um, recognise me. So I was wearing a really disgusting red wig, and <laughs> very really in disguise, and and very. <laughs> An awful, awful, you know, a knitted, cable-knitted cardigan. I, I, we were trying to look like middle-aged Afrikaners. And God knows what middle-aged Afrikaners looked like. Well, they couldn't have looked as bad as we did. But we... Uh, and, and it's awful now that probably the most famous pictures of me ever are me being dragged along the cricket ground. They were all front-page news too, but in this dreadful wig and this cable-knit cardigan, which is a horror. Um, and... And, and so we, we sat right down on the fence um, with our esky and we talked in what we thought were Africana accents for the first um, 
half, and the police were standing right in front of us. There was a policeman, you know, two feet on one side and two feet on the other. It was very, very... And just after half-time, we actually said to them, oh, could you move away a bit because, you know, we can't see the game properly. And these poor police did. They just moved aside. <laughs> and then we used the metal esky to, um, as a leap uh, frog sort of um, thing and, and jumped over the picket fence and ran onto the field. And we were the only people to effectively stop a game during that whole tour because, wow. because they'd had such extraordinary um, police presence. And as we're running on, I'm thinking, gosh, because we just thought we'd be arrested as soon as we jumped over the fence, but we kept running and all of us had the same thing. What do we do now? Because we hadn't <laughs> even discussed what we do next. Because <laughs> it, awesome. it, ne it never occurred to us that we'd get there. Um, my sister, with great presence of mind, grabbed the ball and kicked it. Amazing. And, and the bulletin called it the best kick of the season. It just went up in the air and sort of... Did she really? Nailed it. <laughs> yes, nailed it. I sort of lay down in the middle of the scrum area and and um, Ralph, uh, Ralph Pierce just ran around like a frightened rabbit with police and, you know, players following him. And, uh, and that's a wonderful thing to watch on television now too. But they... Uh, grabbed hold of me. They, they let Verity walk, or Verity might have been upright anyway, but I was lying down, and they dragged me off to the side, and then they never said stand up now or anything. They just dragged me all the way around the boundary of the of the cricket ground and, um, and past all the actual um, supporters, uh, not my supporters, <laughs> the footy, the footy <laughs> fans. And some of them came down, uh, they all came down and sort of swore at me and yelled, but some of them even spat on me. I remember that being a... But the thing that I remember most was that I had a metal watch on and they you know, were dragging me by the wrist and it was cutting into my wrist, so, that was, so I was in a bit of pain. Anyway, we then get taken hauled off and when I appear in court a few... Uh, I thought it was quite a lot later, but looking at the dates now, it was about a month later or three weeks later, I, we have, I appear in court and they give me, out of the blue, this... Because it was just a demonstration offence. We expected a big fine or... A, a good a big fine and a good behaviour bond would mm. have been. But they gave me two months jail. And I've never seen my lawyer look quite so shocked. He just turned to me and said, you've, you've got to be thankful they didn't have the death penalty, you know. They just would have given it to you, yes. the worst they could have done. Yes, and it was because they, they made out that I was the leader, because I was slightly older than the, the other people that were involved in the demonstration, and they, yeah. And that, so you actually, you went to jail? No, well, I, I went to jail for a short time, but then we I got out on appeal, and um, that went on for the three years, my appeal against that case. Um, and it's a bit what, a friend of mine's now writing a, academic paper about it, it's called um, Punishment by Jurisdictional something or other, but it means, in those days they used to punish us by making us turn up over and over and over again, like just for an ordinary street offence, you'd be adjourned, they wouldn't have their papers, they'd object to something, and you'd end up 
turning in up in court five, five times and taking five days off work or five days from your lectures just for a simple offence. So it, it went on for three years, my appeal. Can I talk about what was going through your mind when you were at the game? So, I mean, were, were your palms sweating? When did you decide to run? Like, how did you make that decision? Weren't you terrified? I wasn't, no, because when I was young, I had no... Um, I seemed, I had no fear of mm. of what would happen to me because you knew you weren't going to be killed. Well, you were pretty certain you weren't going to be killed, and so I was never worried about that. What I what I was worried about on that at that game was how is this demonstration going to go? Because I'd been working on it for three years, yeah, and we'd been leading up to it, and we knew it was a very important game. That's the game that everyone remembers. That's the game I can go anywhere now, and some old geezer will come up to me because I'm an old geezer too now, but they'd come up to me and say, I was there, I saw you run onto the cricket ground. And so it's the game, they mostly weren't, but they remember it because mm. it was on television and mm-hmm. things. And so we knew how important it was. So I think my main fear was, will this work, will this work? And when we um, saw the coverage the next day, it was it was really good. But we knew we had another six weeks of this to go. Yeah. And one thing I'll say about, say to... Um, activists of today is be really careful you don't burn out because mm. we all sort of burnt out during that campaign because it was so intense and it was really only over a couple of months, the actual um, campaign itself. And there was a period where the Springboks went up to um, north of New South Wales and to Brisbane and they were away for about two and a half weeks and I just went to bed. And I just didn't yeah. get out of bed until they came back for the final game in Sydney. Yeah. because I And I realised I was having a bit of a breakdown, I think. But at the time I just thought, you know, why can't I get out of bed? Yeah, that's pretty yeah. intense. It takes a pretty personal toll, something you've been working towards for that long. Yeah, and, 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 and you've got to be kind to yourself. I'd say to young activists um, all the time now, realise that... You're more valuable if you can keep doing this all your life. And so you've got to just have fun along the way and and don't burn yourself out. That's right. Mm. Another thing that happened at the time that I think is more pertinent than uh, I would like it to be is that you were really opposed by actual Nazis. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, and, and, of course, uh, apartheid and... You know what was going on in Africa generally was very big to the Nazis, and and the Nazis were very strong then. They had a, they had a headquarters down at St Peter's, and uh, they their um, their muscle man was a guy called Ross May, or always just known as the Skull, and and we've got incredible pictures of the Skull looking very frightening, which he was. He was a, a big frightening man, and um, he had already attacked me at a meeting that I had attended um, really for the independence of Zimbabwe, which was called Rhodesia then, and it was a meeting of the Rhodesia Association, who were the whites Mm. supporting Rhodesia, and he had basically punched me to the floor. And I remember the police saying to me, we think you should take him to court. And I didn't do that. And I was right because I think he just would have been more obsessive than ever. He was totally obsessed by me anyway and used to um, 
try and attack me when he could. Um, like physically, obviously. Yes, yes, and I really didn't want that to be exacerbated. But there's an interesting um, thing in my uh, ASIO file where the police are outside my house in 26 Dargan Street, Glebe, and they actually see the Nazis uh, drive up to my house, throw a brick through the window and then drive on. And the ASIO guys just sit there still watching my house and they don't go after the Nazis and um, and and follow them. That's so crazy. I mean, I would have thought this wasn't that long after World War Two. What are we doing with actual Nazis in St Peter's? Yeah. <laughs> and um, he, he mostly didn't wear a... a um, swastika in public mm. but the, we, there are photos of him from that time in, in the full bit with the, with the swastika and everything uh, and on another occasion he wrote um, or I think it was him um, wrote uh, it was definitely the Nazis because they lived they actually lived further up the street um, and, and he wrote um, red rat in front of my on the footpath in front of my house so we went out and added an F so that it was Fred rat because we <laughs> thought it sounded that was nicer it sounded friendlier. Nothing better than maybe yeah. so, laughing at a Nazi. And later, actually, when I was involved with a um, a, a union anti-racism, it was called Tukar Trade Union Committee on Aboriginal Rights or something. It was a, a an early support group for uh, Aboriginal land rights from the union movement. And um, uh, one of the... Uh, leaders of that, Bromman Ridgeway, who was um, Chinese, they they really went after her. So it was frightening. Yeah. And don't forget Jim Saleem, who has just stood in the by-election for, Long, for Longman. Uh, Jim Saleem was jailed for um, uh, bombing um, the house of Eddie Fundy, who was the African National Congress rep in um, Sydney during the 80s. So, so they were quite, they were they were potentially lethal. Yeah, and mm. that, like crazy that still around, still running. Still around, yeah. It's just insane. Yeah. Um, the other thing I want to touch on was you had a correspondence with Don Bradman. Oh yeah, I'm so glad you raised that. <laughs> it's the only thing I've ever done that actually impressed my son. When I when I I kept saying to him, I'm sure I've got these letters from Don Bradman somewhere, you know. And we actually one night sat up and looked through the. Filing cabinets where I thought they were, and we found we found I think four of the five or six that I got, and he was so impressed. Anyway, yes, what happened was um, I, I was getting a bit of publicity. This is just before the um, spring box arrived, and I suddenly get this letter. Like he wrote to me, I didn't write to him. He, oh. I get this letter from Don Bradman through the post, of course, saying, "Dear Miss Bergman." you know, why are you doing this, blah, blah, blah. And um, because what we were really trying to do was we didn't think we'd be able to stop the Springboks, but we had thought we had a pretty good chance of stopping the cricketers that were coming six months later. In I the, mean, a test match, five days. Very easy to oh disrupt, goodness, very yeah. easy to do. So we, we, had, we thought we had a pretty good chance of, of stopping the cricket. So that's why our campaign was called Stop the Tours, because we were meaning the Springboks and the cricket. And Don Bradman was uh, chairman of the cricket board mm-hmm. at the time. And it was in that capacity that he really wrote to me, although it was a very personal letter. Often the letters were handwritten. And he wrote 
he wrote me a whole lot of things about, you know, why aren't you demonstrating against the Russians, you know, yeah. the Bolshoi Ballet and all those sorts of fairly traditional arguments. And surely the South Africans are moving towards a multiracial society, which they weren't, but, you know, they said they were. Anyway, so I, I took it very seriously because I'm an ex-Anglican and, you you know, you're always polite to people. And um, the interesting thing was that I was a big cricket fan and a big sports fan generally, and... The fact that this great icon had written to me didn't didn't faze me in the slightest. I suppose I thought, oh well, you know, Don Bradman's written to me. I better Just write a standard back. Standard Tuesday, yeah. <laughs> so I so I wrote back to him, answering all the things mm. and and being very, and you know, I'm a historian and researcher, so I really tried to answer all these questions. And then he wrote back again. But what about this and what about that? And I wrote back to him. And then he wrote again, and then I've got a lovely one, which is a um, uh, just a handwritten note saying, "Miss Bergman, I have been waiting for your p- reply, and you haven't replied." <laughs> you know, so wow. he, he was actually, and and um, we go through all the arguments, and then about eighteen months after it was all over, he, he sends me another letter with a, a press cutting about some uh, multiracial sport that was happening, saying, "Miss Miss Bergman, is this what you?" Um, you know, this is what we should be aiming for. And I had to write back and say, no, it needs to be non-racial, mm-hmm. not not multiracial. But it was a very polite and very... Uh, I felt he was an older man questing for the right answer. And eventually in September of that year, he comes out as the head of the cricket board and announces that... Australia won't play South Africa until the system of apartheid is finished, which was extraordinary because we expected them to say, we can't guarantee the team's safety, so we can't really have them come to Australia. But he came out with this political statement, which was wonderful. What a victory. We were dancing in the street when we we heard this in the radio. I had just ordered a thousand Stop the Tours badges. (laughs) And I rang up the badge people the next day and said, stop the press, sort of thing, but they, they'd still printed them. Um, and many years later, uh, I read in an interview with John Bradman, Don's son, that it was Don's correspondence with me and Peter McGregor that had helped change his mind to, to that. And I remember thinking, wow, thank goodness I had enough Anglicanism in me to answer the letters, you to know, really because you did be thoughtful yes. about it. Yeah, oh, what a tremendous so, victory! You did I stop know. the tours. I know we did, <laughs> and we stopped the tours. And then um, Gough Whitlam gets really no tours were going to happen uh, after the cricket tour got cancelled. It was quite clear that there was going to be no further tours. But then Gough Whitlam gets in in 1972 and bans any sporting ties with South Africa until apartheid's finished. And eventually, under the Glen Eagles Agreement of 1976, I think. Uh, the Commonwealth decides no sporting tours with South Africa. But the interesting thing is that New Zealand kept playing rugby union with them until that very famous tour in 1981, mm. where, you know, you sometimes see films of the pitch invasions and things by the demonstrators. But, but also it seems to speak to they were following your tactics... Yes, ten years too late. Ten years whenever too the late. New Ze- whenever the New Zealanders say, "Oh, we had better demonstrations," I always say, ten years too late." <laughs> what a tremendous victory, Meredith! Yeah. Well, well, bloody done. Well, whenever I used to think, 
you know, we, we bat away on these issues and we never seem to win. And then I think, well, we do win. You know, it really was people's power that stopped the Vietnam War. It was the, the uh, demonstrations in America and all around the world that stopped, mm-hmm. that stopped the Vietnam War. And we helped stop apartheid. I mean, obviously it was one on the ground in South Africa, but isolating mm-hmm. the white South Africans did sap their morale. Absolutely. I mean, it yeah. took a very long time. Yes. After that, but I mean, yes. cutting those ties. Yes. Had to definitely isolate them. And uh, when I first travelled to Africa, I remember talking to some guys in uh, Kenya, I think, and they said, um, "Oh, we listened to it all on it on our little transistor radios, and we all cheered when um, and we so cheered when the game was stopped, you know." And I thought, "Gee, even." You know, even over in Africa, they were aware that yeah. four crazy people had run onto the field and stopped the game. Yeah. Tremendous. That's probably is what mm. they'd been asking for. Yeah, and of course, the whole of Africa was involved in the anti-apartheid mm. struggle because it was such a such an issue. So, well, Meredith, thank you so <laughs> much for sharing this. You know, I I really did a bunch of research, and it's actually really hard to find out about a lot of this information like online. Um, so I'm so happy because it's not digitized. It's not digitized. It's all there in the um, in the old legacy media as well. Yeah. Defunct papers and whatnot. So thank yes. you so much for sharing. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to For the Win. I'm your host Emily Mulligan. Chuck us a review on iTunes or.